0: Section 61 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. We may take briefly as epilogue to the Council of Chalcedon the disturbances and insurrections consequent on the attempts to enforce its decisions. a. in Palestine, b. in Egypt, c. in provinces further to the east. a. Juvenal, Bishop of Jerusalem, had played a sorry part in the whole business. It is not surprising that when he returned, pardoned and rehabilitated, to his bishopric, his flock was not unanimous in welcoming him back. His opponents, the most vigorous of whom came from the monastic bodies, set up in opposition to him a certain Theodosius, a monk who had been at Chalcedon and who had returned full of wrath and of determination to resist the new decisions. Juvenal fled back to Constantinople while Theodosius acted as patriarch, appointing bishops of monophysite views and bidding defiance to imperial as well as to conciliar authority. The recalcitrant monks had the sympathy, if not the active assistance, of the ex empress Eudokia, who was still residing in Palestine. Pope Leo, it need scarcely be said, was vigorous with his pen on the other side, Marcian determined on armed intervention. Forces were sent under the Count Dorotheus, and Juvenal was reinstated. Theodosius was brought prisoner to Constantinople and liberated during the next reign. The undercurrent of monophysitism was, however, only covered for a time, not permanently checked. B. In Alexandria, as might be expected, the resistance was more prolonged and more serious. Whatever the faults of Dioscorus, he still had partisans among the monks and the common people. His successor Proterius was chosen, we are told, by the nobiles civitatis, and aristocratic management did not always succeed in Alexandria. Here again recourse was had to military force. Proterius had not the art of making himself popular, and when Dioscorus died at Gangra, his place of banishment, a clever schemer came to the fore. This was Timothy, a Teuton whose tribal name, the Harul, was appropriately twisted into Ilurus, the cat. He is said to have gone by night to the bedsides of those whom he wished to persuade, and to have told them, as they lay between sleep and waking, that he was an angel sent to bid them provide themselves with a bishop and, in particular, to choose Timothy. On the death of Marcion, he obtained his desire and was chosen bishop by the people and consecrated in the great church of the Caesarium, once the scene of the murder of Hypatia. A fate very much like that of Hypatia befell the bishop Proterius, whose mangled body was dragged through the streets and then committed to the flames. How far the actual murder was instigated by Timothy it is impossible to say. The Emperor Leo, who had succeeded Marcion in 457, could not of course sanction the result of such proceedings. One scheme which suggested itself was the calling of a new council. Any notion of the kind was, however, frustrated by Leo of Rome, who probably thought that an assembly held in the east at that juncture might prove even more antagonistic to Roman authority than the Council of Chalcedon. Accordingly, by his advice, the emperor sent round circular letters to a large number of bishops and ascetics. Simeon Stylites had a copy, asking for their opinion and advice. The result was a general condemnation of Timothy Ilurus and a confirmation of the Chalcedonian decrees. One bishop declared against Chalcedon, but even he was opposed by Timothy. Ilurus was accordingly driven out and succeeded by another Timothy called Salophaciolus. But Ilurus maintained his influence, and on the wave of monophysite reaction under the pretender Basiliscus, he returned to his see. From about this time, we may date the practical nullity of the Orthodox Alexandrian Patriarchate and the rise of the Coptic Church. But as is seen by the whole course of events from the days of Theophilus and earlier, the causes of disruption were not entirely due to the differences between Ek and En. Alexandria itself might be Greek and cosmopolitan, but Egypt had a peculiar and national character which was chiefly evident in its language and its institutions, particularly its monasticism. If it seems surprising that violent ecclesiastical rivalries and the turbulence of the most unrestrained city mob to be found in all history should have led to the growth of a church which, with all its faults, has maintained itself ever since in the affections of the common people, the clue is to be found in the separation of Greek and Egyptian elements which were incapable of a satisfactory and wholesome combination nation, but the separation naturally led in time to the fall of the Roman power in the chief seat of Hellenic civilization in the East. C. In the East, on the other hand, in Syria and Mesopotamia, there was less opposition to the Chalcedonian settlement, but a few years later a latent discontent broke into revolt. Domnus, bishop of Antioch, had played an undignified and unhappy part in the controversy. Though a friend of Theodoret and of Abbas and an Antiochine in theology, he had been forced to subscribe the decisions of the robber council, and even after that humiliation, had been deprived of his see. He was therefore pardoned at Chalcedon, but he was pensioned, not restored, to office. His successor Maximus had been practically appointed by Anatolius of Constantinople. Leo thought best to confirm the appointment, and Maximus justified the hopes placed in him by proclaiming the decrees of Chalcedon on his return. But a few years after, for some unknown reason, he was deposed. In 461, a violent monophysite, Peter the Fuller, succeeded in intruding into the sea. His contribution to the monophysite cause was of the kind always more effectual than argument in winning popular sympathy, a change in ritual. He introduced into the Trisagion, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of Hosts, the phrase, Who was crucified for us. The imputation of suffering to one of the Trinity seemed to go further in the doctrine of one nature than even the ascription to the deity of birth in time. The catchphrase excited the more passion because of the opportunity it afforded for rival singing or shouting in the church services. Peter was twice expelled from Antioch, but returned in triumph and took an active part in the Henoticon scheme, to which we shall come directly. Meantime, Abbas had returned to Edessa. The part taken by this city in the next period of the conflict is so interesting and important that it may seem desirable to notice here the circumstances which had made it theologically prominent. Edessa was the capital of the border province of Osroene, belonging to the empire but close to the Persian frontier. According to tradition, it had received Christianity at a very early period, and there is no doubt that the people of those regions speaking a Syrian tongue and but little acquainted with Greek philosophy held a theology different in many respects from that of the Catholics or of Greek-speaking heretics of the 4th and early 5th centuries. All this, however, came to be changed by two events the foundation of a school chiefly for theological studies at Edessa, circa A.D. 363, and the active efforts of Bishop Rabula, who died A.D. 435, to bring the Church of Edessa into line with those of the Empire. These two forces, on the present occasion, acted in contrary directions. The school, which had been founded soon after the abandonment of Nisibis to the Persians, 363, had become a nursery of Antiochine thought. For some time Abbas had presided over it and labored hard at the translation and promulgation of the theology and exegesis of Theodore of Mopsuestia, the real founder, as is sometimes stated, of Nestorianism. Rabulla, the bishop, was an uncompromising Cyrillian. On his death, Abbas was raised to the bishopric and thence exerted his influence in the same direction as formerly, supported by a faithful and singularly able pupil, Barsumus or Barsauma, who shared his fortunes and returned with him to Edessa after the Council of Chalcedon. On the death of Abbas however there came a monophysite reaction Nonus who had held the see while Abbas was under a cloud reascended the episcopal throne 457 In his anxiety to purge the city of Nestorianism, though Abbas had anathematized Nestorius more than once, he made an attack on the school and banished a large number of Persian teachers, i.e., of the Orientals who had kept by Abbas. Barsumas came to Nisibis, now under Persian rule, and there devoted himself to the task of freeing the Syrian church from the western yoke and of combating Monophysite doctrine. It will shortly appear how an unexpected turn of events greatly assisted him in both these objects. What has chiefly to be noticed here is that a few years after the Council of Chalcedon, Nestorians and Eutychians, or those to whom their adversaries would respectively apply these names, were in unstable equilibrium in various parts of the East. Part 4 We now come to the fourth stage in the controversy or series of controversies which both manifest and also enhance the religious disunion of this century. The attempt of the Emperor Zeno, along with his bishops of Constantinople and Alexandria, to bring about a compromise. A few words about the character and position of each of the three parties in this attempt may fitly precede our examination of their policy and the reason of its failure. Zeno the Isaurian, history has forgotten his original name, Tarasercadusa, the son of Rusum was son-in-law of Leo I and succeeded his own infant son, Leo II, in 474. As to the part of his policy which concerns us here, we have Gibbon's often quoted remark that it is in Ecclesiastical Story that Zeno appears least contemptible. We shall see directly that this opinion is open to controversy, but there is no doubt that Zeno found himself in a very difficult position, Scarcely was he seated on his throne when Basiliscus, brother of the Empress Dowager, raised an insurrection against him, 475, and he went into exile. Basiliscus appealed to the monophysite subjects of the empire, anathematized the Tome of Leo and the Council of Chalcedon, and recalled the disaffected bishops, including Timothy the Cat and Peter the Fuller. The circular letter in which he stated this decision is a remarkable assertion of the secular power over the church. It was, however, of no lasting effect. The storm it aroused forced Basiliscus to countermand it. After about two years of banishment, Zeno fought or bought his way back. The bishops who had assented to the encyclical of Basiliscus made very humble apology, and for a time it seemed as if the Chalcedonian settlement would prevail. The fact that it did not is to be attributed mainly to the bishops of Constantinople and Alexandria, Acacius and Peter. Acacius, who had succeeded Gennadius III after Anatolius on the episcopal throne of Constantinople in 471, was a man of supple character, forced by circumstances to appear as a champion of theological causes rather than in the more congenial character of a diplomatist. He seems to have been drawn into opposition to Basiliscus, to whose measures he had at first assented, then to have headed the opposition to them, and to have earned the credit of the anti-encyclical and of the final surrender of the usurper. In this crisis, Acacius had found his hand forced by the monks of the capital, The monastic element is very strong in all the controversies of the period, but it is not always on one side. In Egypt, as we have seen, the monks were monophysite. In Constantinople, the great order of the Achaematai, sleepless, so-called from the perpetual psalmody kept up in their churches, was fanatically Chalcedonian. Possibly the recent foundation under the patriarch Gennadius of their great monastery of Studium by a Roman may partly account for their devotion to the Tome of Leo. In any case, they formed the most vigorous resisting body to all efforts against the settlement of Chalcedon. The policy of Acacius seems to have been determined by the influence acquired over him by Peter Mongus of Alexandria, although in his earlier days of Chalcedonian orthodoxy he had regarded Peter as an arch heretic. Peter Mongus, or the Stammerer, had been implicated in many of the violent acts of Dioscorus, and had been archdeacon to Timothy the Cat. On the death of Timothy, he was under circumstances somewhat diversely related, chosen as his successor, though the other Timothy, Salophaciolus, was still alive. On the death of Salophaciolus, a mild and moderate man, there was a hotly disputed succession, and Zeno obtained the recognition of Peter as patriarch of Alexandria, A.D. 482. Peter had already sketched out a line of policy with Acacius, which was shortly embodied in the document well known as the Henoticon, or Union Scheme, of Zeno. The object of the Henoticon was stated as the restoration of peace and unity to the Church. The means by which such unity was to be obtained were, however, unlikely to satisfy more than one party. We have seen that Gibbon eulogizes it, and more recent historians have followed his opinion. But since a theological irenicon drawn up by men of shifty character and no scruples, must be judged by the measure of its success, we may hesitate to congratulate the originators of a document which, though approved by the Patriarchs of the East, was certainly not so by all their clergy and people, and therefore caused a schism of thirty-five years between Rome and Constantinople, and forced the Church of the Far East into counter-organization under the aegis of the Great King. Like the Emperor Constantius before him, who sought to settle the Arian difficulty by abolishing the Homoousion, and the Emperor Constans after him, who wished to allay the bad feelings of the Monothelites and their opponents by disallowing their distinctive terminology, Zeno tried the autocratic shortcut out of the controversy by the prohibition of technical terms. Like the other would-be pacifiers, he aroused a great storm. The Henoticon is in the form of a letter from the emperor to the bishops and clergy, monks and laity of Alexandria, Egypt, Libya, and Pentapolis. It begins by setting forth the sufficiency of the faith as declared at Nicaea and at Constantinople and goes on to regret the number of those who, owing to the late discords, had died without baptism or communion and the shedding of blood which had defiled the earth and even the air. Therefore, the above-mentioned symbols which had also been confirmed at Ephesus are to be regarded as entirely adequate. Nestorius and Eutyches are anathematized and the twelve chapters or anathemas of Cyril approved it declares that Christ is consubstantial with the Father in respect of the Godhead and consubstantial with ourselves as respects the manhood, that he, having descended and become incarnate in the Holy Spirit and Mary, the Virgin and Mother of God, is one and not two, for we do in no degree admit those who make either a division or a confusion or introduce a phantom. It goes on to say that this is no new form of faith, and that if any one had taught any contrary doctrine, whether at Chalcedon or elsewhere, he was to be anathematized. Finally, all men are exhorted to return into the communion of the church. On its face, the document may seem reasonable enough. If all men could be brought to an agreement on the basis of the creeds of 325 and 381, the less said about Chalcedon, the better. But the very mention of Chalcedon in the document with the suggestion that it might have erred destroys the semblance of perfect impartiality. As might naturally be expected, the Alexandrians and Egyptians generally were ready to adopt it, though there was an exception in the headless party, the Acephali, the right wing of the anti-Chalcedonians, who were not satisfied because it did not directly condemn the Tome of Leo. But these people were extreme. In general, the apparent intention of leaving the authority of Chalcedon an open question was interpreted as giving full liberty to repudiate that authority. This was certainly the view taken by Peter Mongus, and in all probability by Acacius likewise. Certain letters purporting to be from these prelates show a more compromising spirit, but in a lately discovered correspondence handed down from Armenian sources, we find Peter denouncing the infamous Leo and exhorting Acacius, as he celebrates mass, to substitute mentally for the names of Marcian, Pocheria, and others whom he is bound outwardly to commemorate, those of Dioscorus. Eudocia and other faithful persons. As might naturally be expected, the Henoticon policy received strenuous opposition in Rome, where Simplicius, the next pope but one after Leo the Great, was determined to lose none of the ground gained by his predecessors. After a very bitter and unsatisfactory correspondence with Acacius and two nugatory embassies in Constantinople, Simplicius solemnly excommunicated the Patriarch of Constantinople as favorer of heretics at a synod in Rome. An Acamate monk took charge of the notification and fastened it to the mantle of Acacius during service, A similar sentence was passed on Mongus and on Zeno himself. During the long period of the schism, a good many efforts were made for the restoration of peace, which proved abortive by reason on the one hand of the high demands of the Roman see, which always required the erasure of the name of Acacius from the diptychs, and on the other, the growth in power and assurance of Eastern monophysitism. Anastasius, Zeno's successor, 491-518, generally bore a character for piety and moderation, but towards the end of his life, when he was very aged, appears to have been committed to a monophysite policy. He seems at least to have been regarded by the monophysites of later days as friendly to their party, He was influenced in this direction by a refugee of great force of intellect and will, Severus the Pisidian, formerly a pagan and a lawyer, later an uncompromising monophysite and head of the once headless party, to whom the Henoticon seemed not to go far enough. Under his influence, the people of Constantinople were agitated by the singing in church of the Trisagion with addition, while their rivals shouted Peter's Theopaschete in its original form. Anastasius showed some firmness in withstanding the Roman demands, but he was unfortunate in his dealings with his own patriarchs. The first of these, Euphemius, who was eager for peace with Rome, he degraded from office only to replace him by another advocate, Macedonius, of the same cause, and after Macedonius in turn had been degraded, a patriarch was appointed, Timotheus, who gave no confidence to either party. With a large section of the people, Anastasius, in spite of his conscientious devotion to duty, made himself intensely unpopular. He made a last attempt to come to an agreement with Pope Hormistus, but it failed in the same way as previous efforts. The task of making terms with Rome was left to his successor, Justin, who became emperor in 518. A solemn ceremony was held in rehabilitation of the Council of Chalcedon. Shortly after, legates arrived from the Pope and union was restored on the condition formerly refused of the erasure of Acacius's name from the diptychs. Strange to say, the two patriarchs whom Anastasius had displaced for their Romeward inclinations were, in virtue of their schismatic appointment, struck off likewise. Zeno and Anastasius received a kind of post-mortem excommunication. All the leading members of the Monophysite and other heretical sects were anathematized. The end of the schism can hardly be regarded as terminating the series of controversies which are the subject of this chapter. East and West were never again to be reunited with any cordiality. But now, for a time, the outward dissension ceases, and in the struggle not far distant with Vandals in Africa and Goths in Italy, the Empire represents the side of the Catholic faith against either persecuting or tolerant Arianism. Meantime, in the East, the Henoticon and the semi-monophysite policy of the emperors had far-reaching results. Mention has already been made of the school of Edessa, once presided over by Abbas, and of the reaction in Osroene after Abbas's death in a Monophysite direction. In four eighty nine, Zeno, regarding Edessa as still a hotbed of Nestorianism, closed the school there. The result was that a good many scholars migrated across the Persian frontier to Nisibis, where, as already stated, Barsoumas was bishop. In this city a very flourishing school was founded, in which the works of the great Antiochine doctors Diodorus of Tarsus and Theodore of Mopsuestia might be studied in peace, and where even the memory of Nestorius himself was honored. The great episcopal see of the Persian church had since 410 been fixed at Seleucia Ctesiphon, and the bishop, Catholicos of that see, was fairly independent of those who, from his point of view, were regarded as the western fathers of the Syrian churches. Christians in Persia enjoyed peace and patronage with intermittent persecutions under the great kings of the Sasanid dynasty. It seems to have been part of the Nestorian policy of Barsumas to convince the king that Monophysitism meant inclination to side with the empire whenever war broke out, while Nestorianism was consistent with loyalty to Persia. Under these circumstances, the Nestorian church in Persia grew and flourished. Beside its school at Nisibis, it had, in course of time, one at Seleucia. Its character was greatly determined by its monastic institutions. Its missionary zeal made itself felt in India and even in China. Altogether, though the time of its greatness was not of very long duration, it acquired, by its intellectual and religious activity, a very respectable place among the churches which the dissensions of the 5th century alienated from Catholic Christendom. While Christianity in Persia was becoming Nestorian, Syria was becoming Monophysite. The whole story of the process does not fall within our present limits, but it may be remarked that the great organizer of the Monophysite communities, both in Egypt and Syria, was Severus the Pisidian, who held the see of Antioch from 512 till his deposition in 519, and whose active and productive life ended about 540. The reorganizer of the Monophysite Church after the persecution which followed the reunion of Rome and Constantinople was Jacobus Baradias, who died about 578 and from whom the Syrian Monophysites are sometimes called Jacobites. His history, however, does not concern us here. Historically viewed, the interest of these controversies lies not so much in the motives by which they were inspired as in the dissolutions and combinations to which they gave birth. The alienation of churches seems in many cases to be at bottom the alienation of peoples and nations, the religious difference supplying pretext rather than cause and sometimes the asserted cause of the dispute is lost sight of when the difference has been made permanent. So it was, apparently, with the Jacobite Syrian and the Nestorian Persian churches. Also, we may notice that the Christianity of the Copts has become more like a reversion with differences to the popular religion of the old Egyptians than an elaboration of the principles of Cyril and Dioscorus and again the breach between Greeks and Latins was sure to break out again, however often the ecclesiastical dispute which had served as the occasion of a temporary alienation might be settled. The fruits of the disunion we have been examining became evident enough in the days of the Mohammedan invasions, Yet had the actual occasions of the disunion been entirely absent, we can hardly feel sure that a united Christendom would have stood ready to repel the Saracen advance. Even if the empire had never lost its unity, it could hardly have retained in permanent and loyal subordination the populations of Egypt and of the East. They had been superficially connected with Byzantium, while perhaps unconsciously they remained under the sway of more ancient civilizations than those of Hellas and of Rome. End of section 61